Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Gentlemen, we have a problem. I guess it all started last week when I asked Leo if he thought the year 1994 was a good time to be in a media college like we were. Uh, This led to something of a post-podcast debate on just what would have been a good year to have been actively studying the movies of that calendar date. It was then floated as a topic idea for a podcast. I thought I'd be very clever about this task and just email actual directors and ask them the same question and pass off their answers as my own. Well, funny story. I accidentally copied in Michael Bay on my blanket email and by golly he responded that for him the answer was 1984. That's not the year 1984, the film 1984 based on book of same name. Turns out Leave Your Brain at the Cinema Door was not a humorous throwaway remark when it came to Michael Bay's films. It was in fact a statutory requirement, as thinking during his films is an actual felony, a kind of thought crime, if you will. I know we're all in a bit of a pickle right now. What with the thought police coming for us in the night, and I know you're all feeling this is my fault for naming you the authorities as co-conspirators, but I assure you, I blurted out your names and locations under the most extreme implication of possible torture. They made me say it twice, as a nice man who came to arrest me was busy patting down his pockets for his warrant card and didn't hear me the first time. Still, I look upon my brainwashing as a good thing. I have triumphed over myself and learned to love Big Bay. Justin now only makes art, praising the works of Big Bay. Leo only writes essays, espousing the total authority of Big Bay. And I spend 20 hours a day giving double-plus good reviews to his films on iTunes and Amazon. Tonight's podcast is about how much we love Big Bay, the subjects of every future podcast also. But uh, I noticed the censor had to go on his mandatory Transformers marathon, and his replacement hasn't turned up yet. Gentlemen, I say we seize upon this chance to ignite what embers of individuality are left to us, and have a quick discussion on what actually would have been a good year to be a film student. Then, back to room 101 for reprogramming, and hopefully an early night. So, who's to start? Someone has a little too much time on their hands again <laughs> this week. <laughs> okay, uh, well, uh, I would say, possibly, that Justin should go first. Ian and I don't know what years they are, but there was some discussion about Justin's year. We happen to know what it is. 
so why don't you share with the folks at home, Justin, what year have you identified? And take us into this this year. Why don't you? <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I've recently discovered you know, that there was a remit for this being a particular time frame. I've cheated a bit. Um, and gone earlier because you know I'm I'm somewhat of an old timer compared to you young whippersnappers, so I've just pushed the boundaries a bit and I am returning. Not that I was going to the cinema at this time, of course I was a, a, a two would probably be a little bit uh, young for the type of films I'm about to talk about. But I'm taking you back through the kind of uh, the glam rock field fusion of of 1973. Oh, I don't remember it well. <laughs> Not I don't remember it at all. <laughs> but more importantly, the films, the films that were there. And I think there was, I mean, the thing I I latched on to, one, I think we're talking in the 70s, before we get the big lavish kind of uh, Star Wars and these kind of things, we're dealing with pure science fiction here. So there's, it's, 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 the 70s is a great kind of time for pure kind of intelligent kind of science fiction. It's, it's pre-blockbuster, isn't it? It is. So, you know, because they don't have vast amounts of, you know, there's not loads of money around, it tends to be kind of, you know, kind of sharper ideas. Um, so we have that, but we also have this kind of, I mean, the 70s were pretty dark, as anyone who experienced it were. But we have, the other thing really that springs to mind is kind of horror and and a particular brand of horror. You know, in the, in the 50s, it was all kind of, you know, aliens and giant bugs. In the 60s, we had the kind of hammer kind of stuff, a bit campy, a bit kind of silly. But there's something fundamentally got hold of, you know, film and, and kind of media in, in the 70s. And the horror turned somewhat darker and, and kind of unsettling, I think I would call it. And that's represented by some absolutely pivotal films at this point, starting with The Exorcist, really which pretty much created its own genre of, you know, we see tons of it now, but your possession movies, you know, the, the fact of linking what had been the supernatural up to this stage, the supernatural is perceived as, you know, vampires and werewolves and weird things, a kind of an otherworldly kind of, you know, strange place, but, you know, clearly fictional, you know, and The Exorcist kind of brought it, it gave a level of, credibility to it you you believe this actually could you know I'm, I'm sure some people might still believe it might be true because the, you brought in actually religion you know and there's something quite scary about austere religion anyway but then and bringing bringing kind of you know um exorcism into this kind of supernatural genre i don't know you kind of suddenly suddenly you're taken to a world where oh this isn't just weird silly you know this is like happening now and it and it just it's it just seemed like it was more realistic it was very smart to bring those two together um so deeply i mean you know it changed it changed kind of horror films and obviously it's been aped and, and repeated ever since uh particularly in the last in the last decade decade really we see dozens of possession movies now in the last few years but you know it set the standard you know um uh, and from this you got the omen would would shortly follow again the same kind of idea um, uh, grounding it in, in in Catholic faith and the dangers, obviously, because you know you've got you've got God and therefore you need the counterbalance of that. Is if you believe in God, then you must believe in the devil, and that's the point, really. That's that's what a lot of people. I'm not religious, 
but I'm sure a lot of people will take it very seriously because, you know, it's all right going to church and have these strong fundamental views about God, but then there has to be the other side. And this brought out that, you know, in kind of terrifying nature. And it was kind of, yeah, kind of grittier than we'd seen in horror. There was something rather disturbing about it. Um, and in the same kind of genre, um, we get The Wicker Man. You know, this is just anyone who's seen it won't forget it. And I'm not talking about the uh, forget 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 about Nicolas Cage and the remakes. You know, this is generally unsettling. This is it's a it's a reaction to the kind of hippie movement that everyone flowered child and here we are in this lovely idyllic place and it's all you know folksy and everything else and it and you find this deeply disturbing unsettling root to this lurking there. You know, it's this veneer of we. It's like it's like having like a horror film set in Hobbiton. You know, like you you you. It, it's drawing upon pastoral things about Britain. It all looks lovely. It all shot in the summer and beautiful. And here we are. And then you've got this really nasty, unsettling kind of situation that resolves itself until you suddenly find the full horror. You know, it kind of builds up to this point. I'm not giving anything away, but you know, it's it's unsettling and indicative of a lot of stuff that was going on in the 70s really i mean this is kind of really kick-starting it um so yeah creepy as hell and uh so horror is big in this time um but then we have kind of science fiction and the ideas that are knocking around here are just kind of really kind of intriguing for instance we get uh westworld which uh it's uh michael Crichton, isn't it uh, my god Crichton. Is. Doing, uh, doing a film about uh, a theme park going wrong. Absolutely. But, you know, this is this is a time where, up to this point, science fiction has all been a bit kind of silly. I know, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of getting more serious, you know. It's, 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 um, but the, perhaps the thing I remember most from this is kind of Soylent Green, which, again, is kind of a, you know, anyone who knows about it, obviously there is a, there is a thing about what Soylent Green is. I think, I think the twist uh, is out yeah. right now, surely. Sure it is, sure it is. You know, I mean, the consequences of your year choice are that the spoiler embargo barrier is smoked. You're you're well away from it. Yes, it's true. It's true. But Solid Green, the point is that it's an overpopulated world. The the way that the society is maintained is by us eating, you know, uh, corpses, you know, obviously, obviously kind of processed, uh, manufactured and processed, you know, uh, but it is cannibalism. And again, it's that kind. It's unsettling, you know. This isn't this isn't like Barbarella and kind of shiny, you know, silly science fiction. This is this is science fiction in the kind of purest sense. This is making a comment about what could happen with uh, well, you know, society. But it's unsettling. And again, it's that that's running through horror. It's running through science fiction. You know, we're not, you know, we have to wait a while before it all picks up on its light and and its and science fiction is shiny and beautiful and. But in the 70s, it's gritty and raw, you know, it's and, you know, it's reflected as well in things like Dirty Harry and those kind of things are happening as well as very gritty crime films at this time. And so, you know, the science fiction and, and the horror is all kind of blending in together into this kind of unsettling time. At the time, you know, the 70s were not a great period to live in. You know, it was a, a terrific kind of unrest. There were a lot of problems. OK, there was there was a lot of angst in society. And that is reflected in the media um, through the films. Um, so nothing is kind of just, you know, certainly uh, most of it is is not just like pleasant. You know, there's this there's this stuff that's getting under your skin. And I kind of love that stuff. You know, that this is kind of pure and visceral 
and it becomes sanitized, you know, in later years. But here is a purity to this. You know, they are generally kind of filmmakers are kind of delving into this stuff and they are pulling out kind of crazy, unsettling works of fiction. Um, and this kind of proceeds through. But 1973, for me, seems to be the catalyst of, you know, the start of this. And this, this, this kind of, they ride through this during the 70s uh, and, you know, until we get to the kind of the, the 1977 when things start to begin to change. So for me, I mean, it's a, you know, it's not somewhere, it's not like, I don't enjoy being in this place, you know, and I certainly wouldn't be aware of it at the time being, you know, in my, as a child, you know, but I think it's an important year. I think it's, it reflects uh, a mood and a change that, that has a, a, a incredibly long lasting, you know, period. And certainly the seventies, you know, are kind of indicative of this kind of approach. So for me, that's why I've chosen 1973. Yeah. I mean, what's really interesting to me is that before you went through those films, Justin, I was expecting, because I, I don't know. I mean, obviously I didn't really look again at 1973 in preparation for this, but I, I from the way that you were talking, I was getting the impression that you were going to go into something. Uh, it's a bit like when we discussed, um, Citizen Kane and talk yeah. about, you know, basically the reason that Citizen Kane has to remain, you know, on the top of the list is because all films from that point on were made that way. And mm. before that film, no films were made that way. And nobody has changed cinema as much as Orson Welles changed cinema with that film. And even though to a modern, I just want well, it looks like a film. It's not even a very interesting film. It's like, yeah, but it blew people's minds yeah. because the way that we're used to seeing films is is now so ingrained that we can't see why people would have their minds blown by that. But I suppose you'd have to sort of bring someone up and only show them films from prior to Citizen Kane. And they go, and now look at this. And they'd be like, wow, mind blown. But uh, obviously that would be a strange social experiment. But the fact that it's like, I mean, you know, three or four i mean yes it's all about grit and grim and you know things like that and it's it's like i don't know i mean i i'm not entirely convinced i mean i suppose this comes down to what do we think a film student studies yes what film students like to study is a parade of things that are really depressing well, but then again, I think I think they might be up for that because it, it has a certain edginess to it, and, and so that might be interesting. As this is different, this doesn't it's have a, a cozy ending it's to it. Purity, it's a purity of cinema that that perhaps has been lost with you know with the sanitization, with money thrown at stuff, glossy. You know, we've seen we've seen remakes. You know, or we might not have seen them, but there are you know there are remakes of uh, kind of seminal seventies kind of things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre that just are, you know, devoid of, and the Wicker Man, are devoid of any of that feeling at all, you know, because they've become too glossy. They've become, you know, just a big event thing, a blockbuster, uh, you know, slick. And, and there is a raw rawness to this stuff that I think goes back to, you know, I consider it more pure cinema than popcorn, you know. It's something there's something that's kind of earnest and and it's not the fact that it's just grim and depressing but there is a it's just a purity to it an honesty to it that i think has been lost to a certain extent with film what people try to do is replicate the feelings of that but they often do achieve that by just throwing lots of effects of it and money you know and completely forgetting that actually the point is these weren't massively huge budgeted kind of or a lot of them weren't anyway 
films, but actually they were just pure. They were looking at a story. They were looking at something. And there's a skill there in taking, uh, not having all these uh, tricks at your disposal, but taking traditional filmmaking and injecting it with this. Um, that is a skill. It's easier now just to throw CGI at stuff. Um, and they try. They have tried. And you know, certain films are definitely more successful than others. But I think that's what it represents to me as a film critic. I think I've found it easier to kind of look at films from these, from these, certainly from the seventies, with a critical eye. You know, and certainly in the kind of things I'm interested in, the kind of horror, science fiction. Obviously, there are lots of critically acclaimed films, and they will always make those films. That's my point. I'm talking about kind of slightly more mainstream. I found that it's difficult to look at it in that kind of analytical eye now, personally. I find it easier here because it's kind of because it's in a kind of purer sense. What I'm kind of getting from this is is the sort of cleverness of because you know culturally speaking, you know it's, you're saying it, it's a Catholic perspective when it comes to the Exorcist and, and the Omen, but you know that there's an awful lot of Catholics in the world, an awful lot of Catholics in America, and so they have those you know those ingrained cultural fears. And, and turning those sort of fears to the screen. And, and the cleverness of The Exorcist is just, you know, the devil, who's this biblical character, and bringing him down to a domestic-level threat that is yeah. so overwhelming and terrifying. Very, very I clever. Think, I think people forgot about the devil, basically. Yes. You know, churchgoers. I think, I think, in many ways, you summed up when you're talking about... Um, Oh, Wicker Man! You're saying you know, it's it's reaction against counterculture, so it's a, re, a, re, a reassertion of the conservative position in many ways. You didn't listen to us. You went off and you said it was all about free love. You didn't listen to us in our two thousand years of blood and Christ. But, but, but that's what the seventies is. That's why the seventies were so miserable because yeah, the failure of everyone was love. high in the in the sixties. How everything was going to change, and of course it doesn't. You know, mm. human nature is quite a squalid thing. And you can have all these high ideals, but then, you know, the flower children uh, grew up into flower delinquents and, you know, um, started smashing smashing the flower gardens up. You know, it's basically yes. reality. Just, Here comes they the went, oh, Actually, this is pretty bleak. And so, obviously, it was the big downer after the sugar rush. I mean, that's 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 pretty much why the, everything is so bleak. Exorcism... The, the, the Omen it was one of my picks for favourite films of the 70s. Yeah. Uh, it, it's definitely one of my favourite horror films. Uh, and, you know, it is that, that that sudden rush of going, oh, yeah, all that stuff that always blurted to me about in, in, in church, which I don't take seriously. What if it was real? Yeah, that is actually terrifying. You know, to have this, this, this powerful, malevolent entity that hates you uh, simply for the fact that you exist and, and has you know, broad scope ambitions for the world. You know, just how powerless you can be because the world is the devil's, and you know, it's it's about God redeeming the world. So, uh, and also the, the terrifying children. That's the first of my terrifying children films, I suppose. Yes. And Wicker Man. You know, it all comes down to the end. Um, I think it's 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 that build up towards it, and and when you actually get to it and it hits you, it leaves you walking away utterly horrified and here's a rejection of paganism wickham and you know it is a reassertion of of christian values again these are all very strong sort of god damn it christ was right kind of trilogy of horror movies in many ways it's establishment um you know the rejection of the establishment has, has led to chaos 
Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that the protagonist is a, is a policeman as well yes. kind of drives that home, doesn't it, for yes. his lord order being actually punished here and, and you know... Becomes, it becomes Christ-like, doesn't he? But he's, he's dying yeah. for a pagan, does, yeah. not instead of a Christian yeah. one. Uh, moving on to your science fiction, a few things I want to say about about Soylent Green. I, I saw it, goodness knows how many years ago, but I was surprised about how many terms turn up in that movie, which is still relevant today. Things like yeah. greenhouse effect, overworld population. This was a this was a film made in 1973. It's not even like an ac- academic paper or anything. So all these concerns... Absolutely. I mean, this is what, before I was even born, they were there. Where yeah. were... I was. I saw it. I mean, I must admit, I I didn't actually see it. I mean, I might have seen it in the eighties when it was on TV, maybe, but I didn't really remember much about it. But I probably watched it probably about seven or eight years ago, and I was. I mean, despite the you know the kind of the stylings of it, obviously pretty classically nineteen seventies. Um, but I was surprised by the freshness of it. Actually, I was. I like you say, it was kind of like. Yeah, these are, you know, these are common concerns, you know, these are, um, so it, it was, and there were, it did touch on some things, I, I, I was actually generally kind of surprised and impressed with it, and obviously kind of knowing the the, 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 the the spoiler anyway, it didn't really hurt, because because I was just enjoying all of it really, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, that's what I mean, it's kind of classic, pure science fiction, that's what science fiction, you know, in that in that sense, is about taking taking something that people are concerned about, and then you know, going a what if, uh, and extrapolating that. Um, and so, so yeah, you know, it's uh, that's it kind of, and the, that's why it's raw as well. It is touching on genuine fears, you know. And and the thing is, you know, we're always going to find find, you know, it's it's a it's a taboo uh, cannibalism. It's always going to, it's not something you generally find in science fiction. It isn't like a horror film, you know, out that horror film. So it's all again. It's always well, it's about how can- cannibalism has been repackaged and rebranded, and that kind of and we can and being sanitized and you know we understand that very much like you know you could argue that it's well you know if you're eating meat you know and you're getting your little chunk of beef um, without any thought about really what's going on there it's that kind of idea as well you know that it's just we can gloss over this we can we can we can pack it repackage it make it look great. You know. Um, without finding out what's really going on. So, so really, I think, to turn us back to film students, I think you've, you've got a selection of films here that kind of tap into a zeitgeist, if you will. Yeah. And they don't go for a sort of more modern, cushy, all things resolve fine in the end. All these films, with the exception of The Exorcist, or, well, even The Exorcist, none of these films end happily. They, they're all essentially, you know, the, 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 in many of these films, the protagonist does not make it to the end credits. And, and evil is still lurking out there in the world at the end. At, at the end of Soylent Green, the twist of Soylent Green is the end of Soylent Green. Uh, and so, you know, there's no there's no resolution. It's just like, well, this is the situation that's going on. This is the conspiracy we've been trying to uncover. Oh, my goodness. All unresolved. It's it's kind of bitter. And the <clears throat> zeitgeist, I think, is what I'm looking for here. They're all tapping the zeitgeist. And they're all, you know, well-remembered, well-regarded films of this period. So, yes. Uh, would you have been able to identify them as a... You know, obviously, if you were a wee bit older and perhaps had pretensions of being a film student, if you'd been attending the cinema that year, would you have walked out and gone, oh, well, here are some influential films I think I've seen? Well, I think certain things would have been fresh. You know, I mean, I think I, I would find it difficult to walk out of The Exorcist and not think, my God, what has just happened to me? Because that, I mean, that's not horror films weren't like that, you know, before that point. And it certainly would have caused controversy, which is not something you generally get, you know, I mean, people might might have complained about 
you know, too much blood or whatever. I mean, but the point is this got, in, you know, anything involving religion is going to cause a lot of fuss. So I'd imagine at the time there was a lot of, you know, placards and protests, I'm assuming, you know. Well, we, we do have an answer to this because, of course, what does Mark Commode believe is the uh, the best film ever made? The Exorcist. The Exorcist yeah. Which happens to be a movie that he, being a, a gentleman, uh, which seems inconceivable somehow, even older than us, he was there. He was at Manchester University. He wanted to study film at that time. So, uh, you, you know, this this is our answer. It is that, yes, I think that it was recognised, uh, at least in in one quarter, and, and, and the Wicker Man also. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Christopher, Christopher, Lee, Christopher Lee says the Wicker Man is the finest film he's ever made. Yeah, Believe it or not. You know, the thing is, right, the point is we're still talking about this. People are still watching it. These, you know, whereas a lot of these, you know, uh, films, you know, obviously can, there's just a big glut of, a glut of kind of stuff. But the, the point is it's still cited, it's still talking about it. Obviously, you know, and the fact that it has, you know, people have tried to replicate it, you know, and, and failed. So it shows kind of the impact it's had. I think, you know, it's pretty... Hmm. Sorry. So, who's next? Should we move on? Some to grim opening. Can we come and redeem <laughs> that? Uh, have you got a particularly happy year, Ian, or is yours going to be more? Should, are we going for the misery sandwich approach? It's, I it's, it's certainly not a not a miserable year um, at all. No, no, I wouldn't say it's a miserable year. Okay, yeah. Is yours a grim year of? of, of <laughs> No, I, I was actually I was surprised at the year that I ended up with. I have to be, I have to say, uh, maybe you could be surprised too, uh, and we'll save that for the end. Yeah. Why don't we go with yours, Ian? Mine. Well, um, I'm I'm going to display a, a rare um, display of knowledge about music and say I'm to declare myself the prince of Revenge of the Eighties Kids and say I want to party like it's 1999. Ah. Inter- ah, well, yes, of course. This was one thing that, that did cross my mind. Uh, because, of course, 1999 was identified as the year that changed movies. Coming into this, coming into this, I, I, I have to say I was completely flummoxed about this until the middle of the week. I had no idea how I was going to identify one particular year as a, as a really good year to have been a film student. And so I, I had to come up with the solution of coming up with, well... Here's my ideal fantasy year. Here are the things I would like to have, and then finding a year that satisfied them. And I had three criteria, which I shall name as um, the emulatable trilogy, the great juxtaposition, and the return of the Titan. And these three factors I was looking for, 1999 has all three. I was like, unbelievable. So here we go. Yes, the emulatable trilogy, not really a trilogy, it's all three films. Leo, when we were in media college together, and we, we weren't just sitting around your kitchen table talking about Terry Pratchett, uh, what were we doing when we were doing college stuff exactly? What was the what was the thing we really, really did together? Well, we made a bunch of films on video. Ding, ding, ding! Exactly. Okay. Now, the thing is about studying these films is, of course, you know, you can... You can be a fan of, of of the blockbuster movie. You can you can be a fan of this or the other, but half the time, you know, th- th- there's no way you can link from some nobody student who likes films and perhaps has an eye for lining up the camera right, or, or to, to someone who's going to be helming one of those films. So, the thing I really wanted to get was there had to be films out this year that if we went and saw, we could be inspired to emulate them. 
they would be achievable films for us to do with our super VHS cameras, a couple of mates, a half-decent script, and some filming around some houses and streets and other public areas that weren't too crowded. We, we could do these films ourselves. Uh, we're talking about contemporary films, not special effect laden, you know, more about character, you know, it, a, a, a screenplay with an idea behind it, which we could do. We may have to scale it down a little bit. And this year, I was looking for three, and I was really grim about this idea because like, I haven't seen every film of every year, and chances are, if there was a charming independent film, I'd probably pass me by completely, unless I caught it on television. But this year actually has, has four, which I've, I've seen, which would be uh, things like, oh, where are we now? I've got to find my list. We had Straight Story, which is, you know, real-life story of some guy who gets on, on his lawnmower and travels into state to go visit his sick brother. And, you know, it's like, it's a very charming film if you've seen it, but it's, it was it was an idea that we could have emulated. I mean, I know two people who have mobility scooters. Let's go film this, do it one, Leo. We can do this. What else was there this year? There was Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, which I don't recall to be, you know, it's a, it's a gangster film. I don't recall it being overly complicated in terms of stuff going on. Uh, it was all just like people in different places talking and being gangstery. My goodness me, I cannot see the films I had all lined up for this. What were the other ones? Oh, yes. Uh, American Beauty this year as well, which is you know a uh, suburban melodrama, which just hangs on on the, on the on a good script and having top class actors to deliver it. What was the other film that was out this year that I felt was achievable by our standard of? Can anyone tell me what it is by looking through the year themselves? I don't think it was The Matrix. <laughs> it wasn't The Matrix. We get into that one. 1999 is a great year, actually. So it is a cracking year for film. It is. There's a there's a there's a Enjoy wonderful film out this year. We don't want to go. We don't go too far down that line because we will be having a podcast all about that very, very, very thing. I cannot find my third one. But anyway, yeah. So we have we have an emulatable trilogy of films that you know we could go off and make ourselves. It's achievable for us, and this is about inspiration. This is about us going to see a film and going, ah, oh, well, all we need is a really, we just need a, a clever idea, a hook to hang ourselves on. And just spinning that as far as we can go with the talent that we have and the skills that we have. And there's editing, editing it and cobbling it together. I mean, we did the, the first kind of proper film we did together was Killing Cabot, which is a script you wrote during your holidays. And, and to sum it up in a very short way, it's, it's, a, it's a, a sort of kid genius hires a hitman to kill the school bully. Boom! There we go. Uh, th- there's, there's an idea you know you can spin for. I think we span it for like uh, half an hour, wasn't it, the length of our film? As a, as a film student and being inspired to make film, uh, I felt these sort of films that they can because they're not high budget. They're, they're, it's almost like a Groundhog Day level of cleverness to them that, that propels them. Are, are things that we could have done and so therefore we would emulate. The other one is the great juxtaposition, and this is the idea that there were two. Just, fil- to, just to say, the, 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 the films you, you may have not been able to, to locate were not by any chance. Oh, I've lost them now. Oh, it's Stir of Echoes. That's just a ghost story. There isn't any. And they don't do ghosts like with special effects. It's all mental and voiceovers and weird angles used to make that. So that was. You may not have seen that movie, in which case you wouldn't know that. But that that is definitely something oh, that. Oh, Dogma. I think Dogma was the other one. Because I think a Dogma. No, Dogma, no, Dogma isn't, no, has a few special effects in it. It kind of be in that one. Sorry? Fight Club came out in 1999. Fight Club. I mean, I said. We could boil down the idea of Fight Club, and we could we could have made that as one of our films. Yeah, exactly. Yes. There we go. Sorry, carry on. Yes, uh, the other idea was the sort of the great juxtaposition, and this is where you get, you know, because it's about learning. 
and the great way to learn is, you know, you have your experiment and your control. So the great juxtaposition is about having a really successful film and, and a really appalling film. And hopefully they're on some sort of same curve together. So they're in some ways c- c- comparable. Uh, and, uh, and from that, you can you can spin your dissertation. You can talk about why this film is successful, what things it does right. Here's this other film. What does this film do wrong? So there's these two good films that you can have there for film analysis sake. And, and this year, it's got to be Star Wars Phantom Menace and Matrix. Now, obviously, I'm casting Phantom Menace as the failure here, which is laughable because it made twice as much money as The Matrix, depressingly. But we're uh, doing a critical analysis here. We're not talking about... Yeah, critical analysis, though. But critical analysis, I think we can all safely say that there, there is fundamental problems on, like, a film student level with Phantom yeah. Menace in terms of the script characterization, pacing, all manner of things that your, your lecturer would just put a red pen through and mark you down for. Uh, and whereas other half we have Matrix, which sort of redefined, um, you know, it was it was it was a game changing movie, and so we have these two. You know, Star Wars had an open goal, and 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 he made his money back for sure. But in many ways, Lucas fumbles it. I mean, Jar Jar Binks it just shows his outright contempt for his child audience rather than his consideration for it. And and then we go over to the Matrix, which is just a sort of packed full of clever ideas and you know these days we know what the twist of the matrix is but it's interesting going in thinking this is the real world and then discovering it's a simulation and having that head popping moment i mean again for me it didn't phase me because virtual reality in science fiction is something i swam in my entire life but for vast swathes of the audience it was a mind-popping idea that the entire world could be an existential simulation i thought those two films excellent fodder for a discussion, for an essay, film student, you know, you can see nuts and bolts going on here. And lastly, Return of the Titan. And I wanted to have a film coming out in my selected year by a recognised film director artist. You know, this is someone like, you know, Francis Ford Coppola or Martin Scorsese. We're, t- we're talking someone who, who, you know, when these films come out, they are they're not just pieces of entertainment. They are, they are virtually works of art. And it didn't have to be a good film. It just had to be, you know, one of those directors that, there is nothing they do that is too small that you can't look into as a conscious decision. A director whose work you deliberately analyze for hidden meanings and subtext and things like that. It's, it's all supposed to be there for you to analyze ad nauseum. and there's no such thing as reading too much into this guy's work. And this year, of course, we have, we have the master of reading too much into his work, which would be, of course, dot, 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 gentlemen, Stanley uh, Kubrick. Ah, uh, oh, yes. Now, of course, we're all going to groan. I've actually never seen Eyes Wide Shut, but I've watched documentaries analysing Eyes Wide Shut. Um, and in many ways, it doesn't really matter whether the film is good or not. The fact is that Stanley Kubrick made a film, and you're a film student, so this is the year you have to go out and you have to analyse this, this film ad nauseum like it's some sort of Shakespearean text and ex- extrapolate meanings and so forth. From. So the fact that we did have this the returning Titan in 1999, you know, think, think about his previous films, how much have they been analysed and talked about and essayed upon? And suddenly we have a new film after so many years. I felt this this surely would have attracted film students to it like flies on cake left outside in the sun. Um, wait, those are my three criteria. That's the reason I selected this year. Uh, gentlemen, how do you feel about my reasonings? I think that's uh, very interesting. What's really interesting is that uh, the other day I was uh, perusing YouTube, as one does, and I came across a video uh, saying, you know, how Episode 2 could have saved Star Wars. And as I was watching it, I didn't really get to the end because I got bored with, you know, the, the because it's stuff that I've 
kind of heard before about these. But what's interesting is that the amount of people who've started to understand the basic or been given a deeper understanding of the basic nuts and bolts of what makes a successful story and why the Star Wars prequel trilogy in no way satisfies those criteria. Like, if this, this, the prequel trilogy had been largely fine or even mediocre, we might not have had this sudden blossoming in the, the culture of people who are like, well, if you want to tell a good story, then you don't do this and you don't do that. I mean, people know this. They, they know it like, you know, they know their own name now because of George Lucas. And this is what George Lucas has given to society, a greater appreciation of how to make a good movie by making three of the most god-awful stinkers that have ever existed um, out of a, a franchise that people were already obsessed with. If you just make three bad movies, nobody spends hours putting clipping bits of them together to show with like little like graphics and stuff why this is a really bad idea and how this line delivery and why this character's action has completely undermined what you're trying to do nobody would bother the idea the, the genius of it is you make these three movies that have become a cultural touchstone and then you completely betray all the people who are completely invested in this and then they feel that they have to like r retire to their caves and lick their wounds and analyze why why did it all go so wrong so thank you George Lucas because it was a really clever thing to do to make three movies that were you know much beloved and then completely throw it all out the window because otherwise people wouldn't have cared enough to go through and go and this is why it sucked I, I can, scene I, I by can, scene I can compare it to neuro neuroscience where the, the main field of study is actually people with brain damage because when you can see how people function with, with certain areas of the brain damage, you get a great understanding of how it works. Same way with Phantom Menace. All, all the, <laughs> the, the dysfunction of that film highlights exactly how it should have been working. And incidentally, I just discovered what my, my original one of the three was, and that was Sixth Sense. That was a film we could oh, have done, Leo. Yeah. So we have Sixth Sense horror, we have gangster, lock, stock, two smoking barrels, we have you know a, a suburban melodrama. With American Beauty, we have charming story with straight story. So there's a there's a, a, a reef of of genres that we could do with our super hit cameras and a half decent script, and and away we go. And we've made magic, and we're so pleased with ourselves. We made a film. So purely from the point of view of just being a layabout student who wanted to muck about with cameras and have fun for a year and have a few in, interesting discussions along the way, I, I felt 1999 year to go, Justin. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, I mean, looking through this, I am uh, I'm surprised quite quite so many kind of uh, films came out this year because they are there is genuine quality here. They are like I mean, the ideas are big here. I mean, the format now we see films, the things around now they're being laid down here. You know, this is. I think we're going uh, to call this year 2000 and minus one or something. Yes. Well, it is. I mean, yeah, like I said, Entertainment Weekly dubbed it the year that changed movies. The Matrix changed movies because before The Matrix, films weren't made like The Matrix. After The Matrix, or I mean, science fiction films. This is the thing. Citizen Kane changed the way you made every movie. The Matrix changed the way you made science fiction and action movies. And then other movies were left largely untouched by The Matrix. But you can't. I mean, that's entire swathes of, of cinema were, you know, I mean, and we've already had the argument that, you know, The Matrix opened the way. From The Matrix comes forth X-Men in black leather. 
And from X-Men in black leather comes forward Sam Raimi doing Spider-Man. And from Sam Raimi doing Spider-Man comes forth Marvel getting enough money off the kickbacks to put together Iron Man. So the Marvel Cinematic Universe grows from the fruit of the Wachowski's tree. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I think it's, a, I think it's a, a fantastic year, uh, and probably it's going to be when we cover this. <laughs> it's yes. going to be. It might be an overly long one because there's, because you know, there's a lot of groundwork to cover here. I mean, it's no. I think it's a. I think it's brilliant. I, I think um, it's a very important, uh, a very important year for modern cinema. I think I would have come uh, away feeling energized as a student studying yeah, films. I think there's a lot of positivity here. There's a, there's a lot of. You get the sense that people have come into Hollywood and they are prepared to inject something, you know, new and vibrant into it. Um, they're not relying on, you know, old kind of forms and kind of lazy filmmaking, although not all of them. There is a sense of, like, things are going to change and things are going to be good, you know. You've got the big blockbusters, but you've also got very intelligent, smart films, you know. Fight Club, American Beauty... You know, fantastic films, and you know, Sixth Sense made a lot of attention. That film, I mean, I, I would say the best, well, possibly the best M Night Shyamalan film. Um, I think, I think it launched cough, a brief cough, Unbreakable cough. Sorry, I liked Unbreakable too. But uh, I, I think, I I think I, it launched I, I, a brief subgenre of twist films. Sixth Sense. Uh, you know? Well, they, yeah, but I mean, it, 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 there was a lot to get excited about from from just a, a cinema going punter. Um, to look at all the kind of shiny stuff that's going on, but also the people that are actually genuinely being John Malkovich. You know, it's like big ideas in these films. Magnolia, again, these are films that have, you know, things to discuss. So, yes, from a film student's point of view, fantastic choice. And also a film student's point of view of, of Eyes Wide Shut, which, which just kind of makes you feel like, oh, it's so sad when these guys have peaked and, you know, Orson Welles peaked and now actually Sam, Sam Kubrick. Yeah. The genius has clearly peaked. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yes, of course. I think I think your idea of the uh, the time coming up is an excellent kind of criteria because you know you are going to be looking at bodies of work, auteurs, you know, and and you know he's kind of one of the last auteurs, really fascinating. I'm um, great stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I would say I mean he's not really one of the last auteurs. I think what I've identified looking over the time is that if you look back at the list of films that were just released. Uh, in the early 80s there weren't that many in in ready you could you, you know there was a, th a possibility if you were willing to travel because of course things ran at the cinema a lot longer there was a possibility that you could in theory catch every film that was released for for many years but as time has gone on uh, budgets have for what can be done in schedules and the workforce and God knows what has contributed to the fact where now film is 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 loaded into a sort of water cannon and there is no way anyone could watch all the films that were released in a particular year they just they just couldn't and therefore I think that now you'd have to unearth an auteur because they you know you kind of get confused about well you know. You've watched so many movies, you can't put together a strand. Whereas uh, in the past, you know, every Kubrick movie could be an event. Whereas absolutely, and you know, they, they, you know, I mean, he didn't make a lot of movies, did he? Really, not not compared to someone like Spielberg or you know these kind of people who've been churning out them since the seventies. You know, he's he's maybe got kind of ten, eleven films. I don't know. I think he's of, thirteen is his total. 
13, yeah. You know, uh, and yes, of course, they, and I suppose having that time between them does, like you say, that makes them an event, makes them, it, it, is, it is somewhat of a shame that, yes, Eyes Wide Shut is like, his, his last he actually filmed was, yeah, it's pretty tragic, but, you know, uh, but still it's an important discussion, you know, the rise and fall of the, of, of the auteur, the, you know, the, the great directors. So it's all part of the story, which is a film, which is, you know, incredibly important, the film theory, so... As it was one of because you had you have standbys as well, Leo. Was was one of yours nineteen ninety nine? No, I I thought it might be because I knew uh, going in that nineteen ninety nine was the uh, the year that changed movies. But uh, let us now turn to discuss my agenda here. In the first instance, um, the first thing that caught my eye was nineteen eighty two. Uh, and I look at my list, and every one of these movies is a winner in some way or another. It'll expand my sort of thesis a bit more. If you have a year that has in it, released within it, Blade Runner, Conan the Barbarian, The Dark Crystal, E.T., First Blood, Halloween 3, Poltergeist, Star Trek 2, The Thing, and Tron. What <laughs> a happy film student you would be. Even the failures of these movies are interesting and fascinating and cultural. And, you know, it, it talks about lots of tides of things that are moving in and out of the zeitgeist. And that's brilliant. But then as I went further down, I'm like, yeah, but you don't just want to focus on those glory moments. Those cold really classics. important culture. Yeah. You know, so I moved on. And weirdly, of the 90s, the one that this is the one that surprised me. And I thought this was where I was going to end up, but it turned out not to be. Because it's even more surprising where I ended up. 1997 was a very fascinating year, not for the same reasons. Because you had things like Alien Resurrection and Batman and Robin. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. But then you had <laughs> other things like Contact, Cube and Event Horizon, very fascinating movies. You had Hong Kong cinema coming to the West in face-off. You had uh, The Fifth Element, which is without a doubt one of the most standout sci-fi movies of any year. We've got Lost Highway, David Lynch doing one of his lynchiest movies ever. You had So you had in 1997 a staggering amount of highs and lows, all of which were culturally significant. I thought, well... We're not going to see the like of that again. So actually, 1997 is a bit of a sleeper in terms of years that it is interesting to discuss. Because, oh, the other thing that happened in 1997, which was a bit of a cheat, is that George Lucas released the special edition of the Star Wars trilogy. So you've got not one, but three Star Wars movies, albeit potched about with a bit. <laughs> but in 1997, so that was interesting. So yeah, so the culture of movies in 1997 will no doubt be something we shall discuss in the in the relevant show. What could beat this, we ask ourselves? Well, the answer comes back, and this was my winner. This was a year that I absolutely cannot deny has the most cultural capital of any year of movies, because uh, before it or since to date. Well, I mean, I only went up to 2009, so it's possible within the last five years something else has, but I didn't look. But yes, between uh, 1975 and 2009, the most important year from a cultural perspective, if you're a film student, is 2002. Hmm. Which is like, 2002, I, I remember we met once at a party, um, said hello, seemed like a nice chap, didn't really stick in the mind. But then you start to look deeper, and below that placid surface, we have ah. 
28 days later. So uh, Danny Boyle doing British zombies with Killian Murphy. Adaptation. Spike Jones uh, gets rings a fantastic over-the-top performance from Nicolas Cage, Mal Streep and Chris Cooper in one of the bizarrest movies ever made. Blade 2. Guillermo del Toro brings Guillermo del Toro to a film which is sort of generic, but then it becomes something very special in the canon of generic movies because it's it's got that extra del Toro nuts such as the fetus vending machine and a quite surprisingly amazing turn from a, a member of an ex-British boy band so yeah that crazy the born identity redefines and uh, I mean the born identity schools bond bond has to become like the born identity and so thought, therefore makes a fundamental change to the espionage genre Bruce Campbell is Elvis in Bubba Hotep so mummies and low budget horror alive and well at this time uh, collateral damage least successful but most Schwarzenegger movie that has ever been made trying to talk about Middle Eastern terrorism through the lens of Arnold uh, punching people in the face and blowing stuff up. And it completely fails. Nobody really likes it. Uh, Cypher with Jeremy Northam and Lucy Liu is just a fantastic movie with a very uh, clear artistic sensibility and so should be included. Dark Water, the original Japanese Dark Water, distills so much of what people love about Japanese horror into one handy to uh, swallow uh, instant cap with drowned children in water butts and all sorts of stuff like that. Marvellous. Uh, Death to Smoochie. Now, this is interesting on two levels. One, it's a very interesting artistic movie and possibly the darkest performance that uh, Robin Williams has ever put into anything. And yes, I am including all those other things in which he's put in dark and interesting performances. But yet it is completely ignored by audiences and reviled by critics to become a hidden classic in days following. Dog Soldiers, starring Sean Pertwee and Kevin McKidd, is uh, the directorial debut. Uh, 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 you know, you have ballerinas playing werewolves in a low-budget British arty sort of horror movie. Fantastic. Uh, E.T. gets re-released in its 20th anniversary edition. Uh, so that's there at the cinema for you to go and look at uh, briefly. Uh, Equilibrium, uh, once described by me as the worst movie I have ever seen. Uh, but, of course, that is something that you need to study, the worst movie you have ever seen. So, yes, and it has Christian Bale in it in his early days, uh, in, in a, a, a daft story about a place where emotion is illegal, which makes it rather difficult for actors, you would have thought, to actually portray anything. It didn't, stop them. it didn't stop them. It didn't stop them. It's a surprisingly emotive, emotional speech. So, so you're watching the whole movie going, well, you should be dead, you should be dead. You, you just emoted, you should be dead. And, and it, it, that's why it's the worst movie ever made, because it's very premise, argues against the audience being able to enjoy it. Uh, we also have the Pang Brothers bringing us The Eye from Hong Kong, Singapore, which is a, a fantastic Asian horror movie and a great companion piece to Dark Water. Uh, so fantastic. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets uh, is, is, is a Harry Potter movie, and Harry Potter is a cultural phenomenon. So, of course, you should be examining how these things are getting translated to cinema. Perhaps not the strongest of the movies, but still worth worth noting that it is there. Uh, Hero uh, by Zhang Yimou is made this year so that's a different type of arty uh, sort of art martial arts movie much similar to things like Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon that was made this year if you've never seen Arrows in the Sky before you've seen Hero you've seen them once you've seen Hero fantastic movie uh, Christopher Nolan brings us Insomnia with Robin Williams doing one of those dark performances we talked about before but despite the fact he's playing some kind of serial killer I'm not convinced 
that it's a better dark performance than his other one. Uh, John Q, which I have never seen but would like to see, it has Denzel Washington in a sort of political movie kind of. John Q is the guy who who takes hostages in a hospital because he's protesting about the vagaries of uh, I think American healthcare or something. Uh, not a very successful movie, but certainly an interesting one. Kung Pao: Enter the Fist by Steve Oedekirk. Now Steve Oedekirk was one of these one of the early YouTube internet phenomenons doing his I think he. He did the thumb thing, and th- this and, and this Kung Pao cuts bits of old martial arts movies together uh, with Steve Dicker. So he's one of the first internet celebrities to get uh, to move beyond the genre into actually making what could be described loosely as a proper movie. Uh, we have the Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers. So we have the, the second part of the Lord of the Rings. So that obviously needs to be mentioned because here we are mid Lord of the Rings. Uh, and I think, if I recall correctly, that uh, the Two Towers is possibly the strongest of the three movies because it has all that sort of, uh, you know, well, sieges and armies and stuff. And, and the third one goes a little bit over the top and then ends 15 times in a row. And the first one obviously ends in the middle of nowhere. So possibly you could argue that this is the best of the trilogy. It's funny that you should mention Stanley Kubrick uh, because Minority Report, which is Steven Spielberg channeling Stanley Kubrick and definitely, I think, uh, one of my favourite Steven Spielberg film and possibly my favourite, well, def- no, no, definitely my favourite Tom Cruise movie as well and marvellously depressing and wonderfully science fiction and has all that stuff like, you know, it has that kind of what-if dystopian future yeah. stuff in it um, as well as some actual sort of futuristic things like the designs of the cars and all this stuff. They actually went and consulted with uh, people about what things might be like in the future and so they've tried to do a little bit of futurism like to actually resolve the future into something that might actually happen, which is very fascinating as well. Apart from the jetpacks, obviously, they're just silly. Uh, Then we have Panic Room by David Fincher. Now, to a certain extent, Panic Room is a not a very good David Fincher movie, not a very good movie, not a very good Jodie Foster movie. All the way around, yeah, Panic Kristen Room... Stewart movie. Uh, yes, a good Kristen Stewart movie. Thank you, wife, uh, for pointing that out. But Panic Room is not a very good movie all around. I mean, it has Kristen Stewart in it, so what do you want? But um, the fact of the matter is that even uninterest or bad David Fincher is still interesting and fascinating as a fairly flat thriller you know, kind of thing. Uh, I mean, if Jodie Foster later got this, the kind of formula right when she did Flight Plan, but the reasons why Panic Room was not the flat generic thriller that Jodie Foster could be successful in were, you know, interesting to examine. Phone Booth, a film of only 72 minutes in length, I think, starring Colin Farrell, made by Joel Schumacher. Now, one of the, in- apart from the fact that it was interesting, it was high concept, Colin Farrell did some acting, which at this time was for a change and Joel Schumacher who had been making you know bat nipples and god knows what previous to this suddenly came back to the fore this was his return to form so people were very happy to watch phone booth and then come out and go "Mm, that was kind of like a starter I'll go and watch something else now Uh, then we have Queen of the Damned uh, the sequel to Interview with the Vampire which everybody hated but uh, it's actually not a bad film and of course if you're going to examine Interview with the Vampire uh, having Queen of the Damned and say, well, why did people like Interview with the Vampire and why did they not like Queen of the Damned is a perfectly valid academic question to ask. What is the difference in the quality of the film being made here? Why are people responding to one and not to the other? Uh, And on a similar theme, 
red dragon, the sort of cookie cutter, oh, well, we may as well try and wring a bit more money out of this Hannibal thing, uh, sort of prequel to Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal, directed by none other than Brett Ratner came out this year. And despite having in it Edward Norton, Anthony Hopkins, Ralph Fiennes, Harvey Keitel, Emily Watson and Philip Seymour Hoffman, people just kind of went, you know, it's directed by Brett Ratner. They're wringing more money out of that Hannibal Lecter thing. Mm. But it's still a very interesting movie. And again, a topic of conversation. Why is Red Dragon less arty than Hannibal directed by Ridley Scott and uh, The Silence of the Lambs directed by Jonathan Demme? Why why is this one singled out as the kid to be bullied, the red-headed, the red dragon-headed stepchild? Uh, Reign of Fire came out in this year, despite being horrendously depressing and incredibly disappointing. It has in it Christian Bale, Matthew McConaughey, Gerard Butler, Alice Creed, and Isabella Scarotko. Maybe it's something that should be re-examined in a different light. I think people were expecting Reign of Fire to be all, oh, dragons, it's going to be action-y, instead of which it was, it's groom up north and there's dragons. So, you know, is that the right way to go the first resident evil movie came out this year leading on to a whole topic a dissertation about why don't video games make good movies except of course that resident evil is is not that bad it just isn't very resident evil uh then we have uh, the ring remake uh, directed by gore verbinski and bearing in mind the fact that this is the year with the eye and dark water in it then you can look at this american remake and say why is it watered down crap why can't we just go and watch something with subtitles reading isn't that difficult, people? We have the last of the interesting M. Night Shyamalan movies in The Sign of Signs, or the last one that people generally seem to like. I hated Signs, but, you know, some people say, well, after that, he really got bad. I'm like, no, he'd got bad already. I mean, seriously, baseball bat, glass of water dissolving aliens what the hell was that all about but hey whatever sorry spoilers everybody uh solaris was remade by steven soderbergh with george clooney and natasha McElhone. uh a more thoughtful science fiction people were not sure where to sit on this because you know soderbergh hadn't proven his chops and the, the original was much beloved of people who like morbid kind of navel gazing science fiction uh with not many words and lots of shots you know it's kind of like a sort of emotional 2001 but obviously, since Soderbergh has continued to dazzle us with his, he's a case for the, the continuing pushing forward of the auteur in in filmmaking. So yes, I mean he, it's it's an interesting film that some people have a great affection for. Uh, talking of Spider Man by Sam Raimi, which we were maybe a little bit earlier, that came out in two thousand and two, and so showed us that superheroes, yes, they could come to the big screen in a big, colourful, joyful, very interestingly made sort of. You've taken Spider Man. Man, but you've taken the Three Stooges and you've taken the man who directed The Evil Dead and put them all into one basket. How can you not have anything to say about that? In the meanwhile, Star Trek was dying slowly and painfully with the release of Star Trek Nemesis. And uh, yes, I mean, you know, it's it's worth noting that that happened. And of course, while we're talking about things dying slowly and painfully, Attack of the Clones came out in 2002. So here we could say, this is the old guard, they're being retired, whereas Spider-Man is new and shiny and Minority Report is dark and shiny these two are just not very shiny at all and while we're on the topic not every science fiction movie was a winner we had guy pierce and samantha mumba and of course um, a rather confused looking jeremy irons in the time machine uh, one of the worst adaptations of hg wells's great work now there's a basis for an essay comparing george powell's the time machine pretty good versus this time machine 
pretty awful. Where did they go wrong? Um, we have the transporter reinvigorating low-budget action cinema. And, of course, we have Disney, finally, on its um, sort of, we're going to do a little bit of sci-fi tip, doing Treasure Planet, which came out about the same time they tried to do Atlantis a couple of years later after that. So they thought that maybe kids would be wanting to see uh, science fiction in the Disney star. Turned out they didn't, but still very interesting and that gentlemen is why i picked 2002 i can't believe you missed out scooby-doo oh yeah of course and <laughs> scooby-doo um well quite a list um, that in many ways i feel you've just done a year show let's not bother doing 2002 now <laughs> there's a lot of how was there like there's twice as many films in this year than other things what's going on it's crazy Yes, of course, this is just my, I'm looking at it from that point of view of, if you were a film student, blimey, you'd have a full lecture schedule if you just went, yes, we're going to do lectures about all the culturally significant films that come out in this year. You you wouldn't have much spare time in 2002, it has to be said. I mean, I think I think it's like, um, you know, in the darkest hours of the 90s, we have to hold, hold to the fact that it, it does get better in the 2000s. There's just so much cream to be had coming I mean, up. Most films I remember from the noughties seem to be from this year. That's the kind of strange thing that I um, there's a well, there's a, there's a definitely right. There's a lot to pick over here with various different factions and different kinds. I think of if you've raised too many things to discuss <laughs> in the time we have remaining. Yes, I think that. But well, that's the thing. I think what we basically have to circle back to before we actually get to that, you know, this is the point. In the dark hours of the 1990s, we could just look forward to the bright light of 2002 coming up in the future. Uh, but yeah, it, it blew my mind because what I was basically doing was going down the lists on our cards for the years to come. Yes, folks, we do actually prepare for this show. I was going down the list of films and going and just saying like taking the list and like deleting out anything that wasn't interesting for some academic reason and that was my approach and many years you can i mean you know not there are always academically interesting films coming out in every year but what was it blew my mind when 2002 was just like wow that's a lot of stuff that that someone who was really wanting to get their think on could really get their their teeth into and and subsequent to that you know there have been good years but nothing has equaled I'm the, right. the sheer I, cultural weight i do remember i mean i do remember this time going to the cinema and it was it was kind of a joyous thing i mean there was there wasn't i was probably started to going to see more films during this period definitely and i do remember it being just you know constantly things that I was watching and, and talking about endlessly with people. And, you know, it was an exciting time. I'm not saying, it's, you know, we're not living in a period now that's got some good films, but it was the start of it. You know, it was dead. Well, I mean, certainly the, uh, you know, 1999 or whatever was, that was, that was kicking off big time. But yeah, at this period, early, early noughties, there was some fantastic stuff. And this is pretty indicative of why that, why I'm feeling that way, really, because yeah, staggering amount, really. Yeah, I mean, I, there's things I remember, like uh, walking out of uh, Reign of Fire, just being like, well, that was rubbish. And then you come back to it and you just go, it had all these people in it. I mean, I can't remember Matthew McConaughey being in Reign of Fire. He did look that... different because he was, like, shaved and, you know, kind of not... I actually like Reign of Fire, but, you know, we can discuss this at length. For the oh, yeah, no, no, at length. But I'm just saying, but I mean, I... think maybe I watched that film all wrong. Sometimes you get that with a film. You just go, 
probably I didn't look at this in the right frame of mind. Uh, so yes, I am keen to. to, to I, I was just like yeah, your yeah. your your description of it is of well, it's grim up north and there be dragons here. I thought, yeah. well, there's a byline for Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, just yeah. I mean, the number of I mean, you look at the the sheer number as well. You know, we think we got a lot of franchises going on now, but God, we had a, a new Star Wars, a new Star Trek, a new Spider Man, a new Lord of the Rings, Men in Black. You know, Men in Black was out this year, which I didn't. I, unfor- you know, try as I might, I couldn't think of any cultural significance of. Men. The thing is, the, the 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 Harry Potter and the and the um, Lord of the Rings. I mean, the fact that you were going every year to see these films, literature uh, on cinema, was, was was a exactly was. I mean, or particularly Lord of the Rings was an event thing. It's like people went, and it was like, oh, okay, I've got an, I've got the next part next year, and it was it was like. It was just something to look forward to. It was a ritual. Really uh, our family, we used to go off and see it in gold-class cinema. I don't even have that in the UK, but that's like where there's only like 30 seats in the entire cinema. But they're huge, comfy recliners, and they'll bring food out to you during the movie. And we would go as a family and go see Lords of the Rings films every year at Christmas time. It was like a ritual. It was. And for a small period of time, it was just really, you know, I was just really excited about I mean, I'm excited about film, but that was that kicked it off again, really, for having gone through the 90s and kind of just, you know, had had a lot bit of the life sapped out of me. Um, it was proper <laughs> like this is what I remember from the 80s. It had that kind of feeling, you know, kind of fun and and just that kind of, yeah, I'm going to a good place, you know, and this is something and it, it, it reinvigorated me. I mean, and so. It has also the the amazing thing of having a swings and roundabouts of adaptation. People, film studenty type people, new adaptation was hot. Oh, yeah, adaptation was in your face. As was Steven Soderbergh's remake of Solaris. Both of these were things that film studenty type people were instructed they mandatorily had to go and see them. But you'd have to get up pretty early in the morning as a film student to catch uh, Cipher and Death to Smoochie. This year, Death to Smoochie was particularly buried. Uh, I think Cipher wasn't what, and Cipher on the other hand, really wasn't elevated up. I, me, and Ian went to see Cipher on the weekend of release by accident. You remember this, Ian? But we were in London, weren't we? Yes, we were, and we happened to see. Oh, that that says it's a sci-fi movie. Let's go and see that. Came out, minds blown. You know, it's a cracking film. Yeah, uh, so you know. It's just the fact that it's got this side of thing of there are films that you know that you know which are we are culturally important and also films which are culturally important but you'd have to be pretty sly to get in there. That mixture is fantastic. The idea that you know you can't just be told what to go and see. There are certain things you're gonna miss unless you you are out of the way. And it is, I think it's one of the first years where the sort of the culturally sort of significant film. And the the blockbuster uh, have a go at you know cross pollinating. Spider Man is is a great example of this. It, it was trying to be both a blockbuster but have a little bit something more going on. And then on the other end of that scale, Minority Report is is it wasn't very successful at the time, uh, which is crazy because I went to see it. I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved it. I love and it. It. It just just this thought you know it redefined 
how you looked at all the people involved. Why, like, why wasn't it? Was it was it because it was the Tom Cruise during his creepy phase or something? What, what was the turn? No, off? Tom Cruise had not yet become creepy. I mean, whether I don't know. I mean, Spielberg fans might have been somewhat surprised because it's not a typical Spielberg film. No, Spielberg uh, took the things that people had said about AI to heart, like how it was a bit Spielbergy to be truly the work of the the wunderkind, you know, successor to Kubrick. And he went away and he made this, you know, one of the most Kubricky sort of... I mean, it is a very Kubricky movie for it a is. Steven Spielberg movie and has some really great moments in it. And and just, yeah, I mean... It, it's, but it has, it has the coldness to it. It has all that... All that charm that is inherent in Spielberg films is removed and you're left with this stark, cold place. And Tom Cruise truly manages to tap into that that ambivalence. Like, on the one hand, he's, you know, a handsome, heroic type, but he's... He manages to convey, I'm broken and confused and not really that likeable. It's the story that draws you in, not him and that is fantastic you know he did it again uh, a similar sort of tapping into the same place to do collateral later on but you know the minority report didn't go over well because first of all i think the studio got a bit nervous about it because they'd taken on steven spielberg to direct a tom cruise picture and this is what they got back so <laughs> surprise yeah they would have been happier with war of the worlds i think yeah and and yeah and then you know it's got a very depressing ending. And what they did was they actually buried it. They brought it out in, in sort of uh, November-y, October-y time uh, when people were not really going to the cinema before the big Christmas push. And so it kind of didn't really make that much money. And then later on, people have... I still think to this day, people have kind of gone, yeah, this is actually pretty good. I don't know why everybody... Wait, it, it's also proper, proper science fiction. What if yes. the police could predict crime? Run with the concept. It, it, yes, yeah, exactly. And and the fact that it has an incredibly depressing ending as well, like whichever way you cut it, you know, murder is back on the table, everybody. Because, you know, at the beginning there is a utopia. The problem is it's a flawed utopia that was built on lies and murder. And the point that it asks that difficult ethical question, you're living in utopia, you know, there is zero crime, nobody dies unnecessarily, but you happen to find out that it's built on lies and murder. Do you expose this and end utopia? Or do you just shut up? And the fact is, you know, even if you want to stick to your own moral guns, you are condemning everyone else to be able to die in drive-bys and stabbed in back alleys again because there is no longer going to be any department of pre-crime. On the other hand, you know, the psychics get to go and live on an island. Yay! Yeah, well, kind of feel there could have been a happy medium where they still used it to prevent crime, but just didn't arrest the people who hadn't actually committed crimes yet. There are crime prevention. Well, well, we should, we should dis- defer actual discussion of actual minority report for another time. It's just the fact that it is here. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I, I must confess that I was as surprised as anyone could be that the year that I picked was 2002 and to be fair i mean when you actually look at my 1982 list blade runner Kodan, the barbarian the dark crystal blah 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 you think yeah nothing's gonna beat that i mean this is the year that you know 
you get Blade Runner and Star Trek Two and The Thing and Tron. Well, I think Ninety Two is like is like a it's like a cult, but this is like a machine gun. It just keeps peppering. Doesn't yes. It? Yes, it does. And nineteen ninety seven is 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 still a, a great year for you know in, interest because it has you know in the same year as you have the high of L.A. Confidential uh, and the fascination of Contact, another real science fiction movie. You have also Batman and Robin and uh, the Postman. I mean, you know, if you were a student of bad movies, just Batman and Robin and the Postman this year is a gift. (laughs) (laughs) And many many an internet reviewer career was launched on YouTube. Yeah, Um, it just, seriously. Well, it's it's also, well, in in a more sort of grander sweep of things, I think it's we've we've ordered our our entries correctly and also chronologically. Um, I feel with, with Justin's kind of bleak reassertion of the status quo, but with no happy resolution, then I'm on to kind of inspiration and, you know, the, the grassroots revitalization and the fall of the Titans. And then and then we have this glorious utopia at the end of, of just a beautiful year of cinema. And, and also, interesting, the Revenge of the 80s Kids podcast picked the best year to be a film student. All three of us dodged the 80s completely. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't. No, no, I, it grazed me. The eighties did graze me. Uh, I think the problem that the eighties experiences is that until the nineties and the the advent of the multiplex, there wasn't any need for that much product. I mean, this is this is something that's very interesting. Since two thousand and two, although they have managed, you know, bits and bobs. They've never managed to completely, like you say, like a machine gun, just serve up this constant diet of like really fascinating stuff again. Um, and perhaps that's, you know, this is the malaise of our times. There's lots to see, but none of it is really getting home. You know, none of it is really. Well, yeah, 82, a lot of the films you named it to were cult films, Blade Runner, cult film, Tron. Dark Crystal, cult, cult, cult. And then this year, it's like little niche cult films, isn't it? If, if you're into these kind of films, then this is the one of the best films of those kind of films you're going to see. Yes, exactly. I think that's definitely the uh, definitely the case. And then it's interesting as well that it is only five years out from 1997, where the result of 1997 is, I think that's the old watershed, where it's like the th- films that were really bad, in 1997 were the last you know they were the barrel scrapings of what we were trying to do in the 80s and the films that were good at this time were by and large part of the new guard and it was a response to this trying to get people into multiplex cinemas idea that this is what they were serving up and in five years they managed to turn it around from you know alien resurrection batman and robin titanic you know i don't care how much money titanic made it's not a great movie. It's it's a you popular know. film though, you know. It's it's mm. it's not like it's not like, you know, Phantom Menace made lots of money and you've really depressed about it. No, there there are people who adore Titanic. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it, you you've turned it around. Well, I mean, Titan, I mean, it's got two parts of James Cameron, hasn't it? It is. I mean, Titanic is the first move really of new Cameron. You know, not Cameron of Aliens and the Abyss and. The Terminator and Terminator 2. But Cameron, oh, this is far more, you know, you can see the same guy making Titanic and Avatar. You can see that. 
it's the fact, obsessive kind of you know avatar it's about the art uh, you know it's it's about the technology and pushing that and i think the titanic is about you know making yeah. something that he's interested in as as real as possible so it's that kind of obsessive detail the fact that on titanic you know all the cutlery is made by the original makers in the titanic <laughs> and there's a little crest on every single piece you'll never see it in the film but you know that's that's crazy but i kind of admire it <laughs> as well at the same it, time but... it's really interesting because cameron because i said the people who adore titanic when it comes to avatar it's the same thing there are people who despise it there are people who will rant about it for hours at the same time there are people who absolutely adore that film there was famously there was a wave of depression coming over some of the fans because they didn't live on Pandora and in fact on a rather less colourful planet Earth, you know. So I've always felt that Cameron, if you're willing to go down whatever rabbit hole he's built, it's it's hugely enjoyable. But if it's not quite your flavour, it, 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 all his flaws emerge before you. So there we go. Uh, so this is it. I mean, I guess we we seem to have had uh, uh, which obviously was possibly the 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 aim of our exercise, one of the most thoughtful episodes of uh, Revenge of the 80s Kids ever. So uh, I think uh, congratulations must go to Ian for accidentally suggesting a fantastic topic for this week. It won't happen um, again. Don't worry, it's fine. But <laughs> if, if, if you want to tell us why uh, 1993 is, of course, the most fascinating year for film students ever, where might they go to tell us all about that, Ian? Well, one place they could go to tell us that 1993's Men in Tights was in fact a film analyst's wet dream would be our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that's 80s as in numbers, so 80s. Uh, Please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. Uh, so please leave a comment. We shall respond. But of course, uh, podcasts are what it's all about. And for those who want to point your web browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S Kids dot podomatic.com uh, please go there and subscribe to our humble podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download to your own pc for dark reasons of your own but this is only where our most recent podcasts can be found for the legacy of our podcasts you need to go to leostableford.com where you can find a massive archive of all things 80s kids um, and also other stuff by me and links to things by me and uh, you know various other bloggy type things that people have on a blog um, if people want to find uh, Justin Wyatt on the internet somewhere doing what Justin Wyatt does best where would they go to do that Justin Wyatt um, that will be on my DeviantArt page. Um, you can find plenty of examples of my of the work I've put up, mainly not not you know actually just my own, my own creation and some collaborations, including some stuff I've done with Leo. So um, yes, there's plenty uh, of opportunities there. If there was ever a show after which you you would have a desire to trot off and and watch a, you know a movie, you know, and think about that movie really hard, this would be it. So that's possibly what i'm going to do now uh how about you guys i'm off to watch minority report again ah i, I think we've had such a beardy podcast I, I've, I've stroked my chin so much i think i've got eczema 
<laughs> no. no, well, you better go and get some cream to put on that. So, uh, nevertheless, so... I have I have a dissertation to write, and I've got to do some further editing on my uh, genre presentation film. So I, sh- I should get on with all those things to meet my requirements to get my Bachelor of Arts. Brilliant, fantastic news. Okay, gentlemen, we'll see you soon in the world of the eighties, kids. Bye bye. Goodbye. Farewell. Oh, wow.